Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. All right, welcome everybody to the next episode of MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. Today's guest, Dave Saunders, CTO of Galen Robotics, a local Baltimore company. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, I mean, you're stirring up a lot of excitement over there in uh, the Carroll Camden area with uh, with your startup company, and you've been in Baltimore for a few years now. Um, we got a lot to cover here in this episode. Uh, very excited about it. Um, usually, we're interviewing maybe CEOs or folks that are kind of kind of trying to run the company, and I'm, I'm hoping to get into a little bit more of the weeds uh, with you today. Not not too much, of course, but okay. Um, my first question for you related to Galen Robotics is, you know, so, so what drew you to the company six, six years ago? Uh, my co-founder and I, Bruce LaCorwick, um, we had actually done uh, another medtech company together. Um, I actually have known his family and uh, worked with his brother back in 1990 at uh, a very early internet startup. So um, I've taken a lot of products to market. I've done a lot of startups. And um, in 2016, we were approached by um, the, the head of Johns Hopkins Technology Ventures, um, actually at the, uh, the, uh, the big MedTech uh, JP Morgan conference in San Francisco. And he said, you know, we've got, um, he said, uh, we, we've got this uh, new robotic technology. We're looking for somebody to commercialize it. It was developed by Russell Taylor, and I knew who he was. He's basically, you know, if you've got like, you know, uh, baseball cards of like who's who in robotics, um, it all starts with Russ. And um, so I was, you know, that right there got my interest. And uh, so we came out to Johns Hopkins and we uh, took a look at everything and uh, kicked the pairs for a few months and licensed the technology and began in San Jose um, working out of our homes. And we came out here um, about one week out of every month and uh, just began to, to, d to develop the technology. But it was just, what was really interesting to me was there are a lot of surgical robots um, in the marketplace. Like in, in spine alone, there are seven surgical robots just for doing pedicle screws in spine. So there's actually a lot more surgical robots out there than a lot of people realize. Um, but in spite of how many there are, there are huge, huge areas of unmet need um, where surgeons were literally coming to uh, the university side of Johns Hopkins saying, where are our tools? Why don't we have the cool technology? Right. And, um, and so this robot really checked a lot of incredibly important boxes um, for uh, what was needed in the industry. And it just seemed like something that could make uh, a lot of impact for a variety of reasons. So I was, I was really stoked. And um, so, yeah, we started the, uh, the company in 2016. And then right before COVID, we had actually come to an agreement with um, uh, the state of Maryland and we moved the company headquarters to Baltimore. And uh, now I'm here. <laughs> no, that's that's great. It's always good to hear the screaming from the mountaintops from your customers, right? <laughs> that's um, right. Yeah. So, so as I understand, you know, your prototype, 
you know, it's very much a collaborative robot. And we'll talk a little bit more towards the end about the future of robotics. But I want to make it clear to our audience that this is very much a, a tool that's collaborating with the human. It's a machine collaborating with the human. Um, so why don't you just describe to our audience real quick, you know, the makeup of the product, kind of how the user interacts with it and, and how it's used in microsurgery. Sure. You know, when you look at surgical robotics, just to kind of like lay the, the groundwork, you've got kind of a, a continuum of types of robots. And on one far side, you've got things like the robot that does LASIK surgery, you know, to improve your vision. You, you set it up, you push a button, and then the ophthalmologist goes and drinks an espresso or something like that while it's doing its thing. It's fully autonomous. It's navigated. It runs by itself once you've set it up. And there are other robots that do similar kinds of things for knees and hips, and usually bony robots are autonomous. And then you've got a category of robots like the Da Vinci, um, the famous one, right? And it's, you could describe it as a collaborative robot, but it's, but people are more likely to recognize it as a remote controlled robot. So you put your hands in this little special controls and you actually move laparoscopic rods around um, but it is 100% guided by the surgeon in real time. It has some additional abilities that are under development that will do little things on its own here and there in a very collaborative kind of back and forth way. But for the most part, it's a passive robot that is basically just extending the hands of the surgeon. Um, for what we're doing, we had a challenge where there are a lot of procedures, especially up in the head and neck, where a, lap, a, a robot that's been optimized for laparoscopic surgery is just not the right solution. Uh, it, it, it just won't fit into those kinds of environments. And so the surgeons needed something that really didn't mind. It's not like they were looking for a new way to do surgery, but what they needed was either a third hand or some way to really stabilize the instruments that they were using and and support the surgeries as they were being done. So what our robot is is optimized for is basically taking a surgeon's instrument that they would already be using, holding on to it, and then just like power steering, you know, you're in a car and you, you turn the steering wheel, there's a sensor that actually then ultimately, you know, feeds into a, a linkage mechanism and turns your tires, right? You feel like you're in control, but there's actually a mechanical assist that's doing all of the heavy lifting, so to speak. Well, in this case, the robot is technically moving the instrument, even though you're holding on to it where you would normally hold on to it. But the result of that is the instrument is now extremely stable and um uh, you can even do things like um, there's like a pedal on the floor that engages the robot to allow it to follow your hand. If you let go of the pedal, you could actually let go of the instrument. Can't do that normally. Like if you've got an instrument down like in somebody's middle ear or a biopsy needle in somebody's brain or whatever, you can't normally let go of those and have them be held steady, rock solid steady. But now you have this ability. So not only do you get assistance while you're moving the instruments around, but you also have these new capabilities for kind of like a third hand that can ergonomically fit into surgical environments um, that are very, very challenging just because they're, they're really tight. You know, uh, just give you one example, then, then we'll move on, is imagine uh, there's transphenoidal procedure where they're going up your nostril to basically do... Um, different kinds of brain surgeries, typically like to remove the pituitary gland. 
Sometimes, because of the requirements of the procedure, you'll have between two and four surgeons all cramming their instruments plus an endoscope up into your two nostrils. It's it, it's horrible, right? Every you, Only so many people can lean into the table and reach across like that. And so those are the environments where you really need better technology, better tools to assist the surgeons for what they know how to do. They just need that kind of leg up technolo- technology-wise. So that's that's where our robot is going after. Got it. Yeah. So to, to, to speed things up a little bit, I, I'll also uh, highlight a few, <laughs> a, few, a few things. No, that was great. A great background. But, you know, two, a couple other elements. Number one, that I picked up that you don't have a disposable, like you're designing your, your platform to uh, accommodate off-the-shelf um, surgical tools, which I think is pretty unique. Or maybe that's changed. But the second thing also... There is a disposable in that it, there is a disposable that uh, is adapter. the instrument adapter. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. fair. That's right. But yeah, the, the tools themselves, you're, you're partnering with, with uh, on, on market products. That's, that's pretty... Yep. A great way to speed your, your yourself to market, and then the other, I think, clever part of of your business that I've I've read about and people can read up it up on it offline is that you're going after the subscription model versus the capital expense, so it allows you to get in the door easier. But but one area that I I, um, I thought was interesting, worth talking about at a high level about your company is um, that one that there isn't one particular sliver of the surgical market that your robot would justify the expense, but it's, there's multiple areas in like soft tissue, tissue surgery and the, and the combination of all of them makes your business viable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, um, one of the, the big, I think Achilles heels of robots in this industry is so many of them are, are optimized for an individual procedure. So, you know, if you want to do a, a total knee replacement you know, there, there are robots out there for it, but that robot can't be moved to another department. It's not going to do LASIK. It's not going to do pedicle screws. It's not going to do prostectomies and things like that. And so you end up with a lot of these one trick ponies out there that have million dollar plus price tags, um, but very narrow utility. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a huge problem in this industry because I'll tell you, I, I've talked to a lot of hospital administrators who refer to those things as just giant fancy dust collectors. And so with our platform, by simply changing the instrument that it's holding, we can potentially move into multiple departments and provide real value to the surgeon. And all that changes is what instrument we're holding. And there are a lot of opportunities that way. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, great, uh, it's a great opportunity for us. Yeah. I've done my homework. Uh, I know your your favorite book was Crossing the Chasm. So here we go. We are going to cross the chasm. I have not read it myself, but uh, you know the podcast is called Speed to Data here. So I want to cover what data was most critical as you were crossing the chasm. And granted, we're always in the chasm, you know, so to speak, in in, in the world we're in. But um, we'll start with you know right when you started the company because our audience you know, is, is clearly the startup world where they maybe are licensing technology like you did, or, or even like a global company that sees promise. And there's, uh, you know, a, a a prototype benchtop prototype that shows feasibility. So there's the early stage. And then there's the stage where you're kind of in now, like, you know, core, hardcore product development, classic product development. What, what, what data was most critical for you once you got more funding and then here towards the end and in the future, more, more commonly, um, you know, what data is and how is that data going to be leveraged? So let's start um, 
you know, day or maybe month six after you, you know, <laughs> stop doing the other work that you're doing maybe and you're all in on, on Galen, what, what data was most critical for you as the CTO and kind of as a company to really, you know, show that this product had viability? I mean, obviously the surgeons were saying, hey, we want the product and, and Hopkins was happy to license it to you. But what were you focused on? Well, you know, it is it is interesting in a uh, regulated industry like this that uh, it's it's very difficult to uh, obviously do anything that that smells like pre marketing. Um, but quite honestly, you need to identify a clinical application that has value to the surgeon. And by value to the surgeon, I mean that they're actually going to go to bat to get that paid for. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, and this is true of any industry, you know, um, I've, I've taken over uh, 40 products to market and in every single case, the most important thing has always been, what does the end user actually want to do? You know, um, something that, 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 that I know drives engineers just bananas is when product managers just hand off like a, a laundry list of features with no context, no just tell me what they're trying to do. And, and that is certainly qualitative data, but it's really important. And so, um, especially for, for the, us in, um, in you know, uh, medical robotics, we had to go into surgeries. We had to see what the surgeons were doing so that we could in real time have them tell us, see how much of a pain this is. Look at what I'm doing right here. Look at the ergonomics of what I'm trying to do here. And this is why this is so difficult today, right? And this is why it's so difficult for this surgery to be done at a secondary hospital because, you know, I have the facilities and I'm, you know, one of the few people that, that have the magic hands to get through this. And yet every other surgeon that maybe can't qualify to do the procedure, they know all of it. They, they, they're certainly trained well enough to know how to do it, but it's just a little bit of a reach from, from a dexterity or an ergonomic standpoint. And so we really had to get that under our skin and understand that. On the other side of the same coin, I suppose, is we had to then understand how that translated into kind of mechanical numbers. Um, you know, you take a look at something like, and I'm not trashing on the Da Vinci in any possible way here. Uh, you know, it, it's a fantastic system for what it does, but it is optimized for the kinds of motions required in laparoscopic surgery, right? When I'm doing a procedure, when I'm supporting a procedure, uh, exploratory, of course, because we're pre-FDA, um, but when we're looking at a procedure, say for the middle ear, I'm looking at zones that are less than a millimeter when I'm trying to like go through like a mastoidectomy. I've got like sometimes a millimeter of clearance um, that is going to be either a successful operation or patient uh, or irreparable patient injury in the case of middle ear surgery, right? For prostatectomy, nurse brain technique, for doing a, a colon resection, you've got a little bit more give, right? And so the guys engineering something like a laparoscopic robot, they don't have the requirement to like have like 50 microns of precision motion for, for, their, for their minimal increments of, of moving the, the end effectors. We do, right? 
um, it would be over-engineering for a laparoscopic robot to dial in their hardware to the kind of precision that we're doing because it's unnecessary for laparoscopic procedures. So understanding what your scale is and understanding what you need to do, not only from a range standpoint, like what, what are my potential procedures that I could be doing or what are the kinds of things that this platform could be doing in the future and can I reach into those with what I'm making now, but also having a perspective on where your current scale of motion, all of those things relate to, you know, heck, you know, what kind of screws are you going to choose? You know, what kind of metal are you going to choose for the chassis to, to provide enough stiffness? All of those things will come down to having that initial understanding of what kind of scale am I really trying to achieve here? And that's, that's critical because uh, you could really end up either over-engineering or under-engineering a product and just missing the boat for your domain of surgeries or procedures or whatever. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think translating market needs into product requirements, I mean, you just, you just nailed it and I totally agree. You don't want to over under engineer your product. So my, my next corollary question here is what what steps did you take to evaluate a university prototype? Um, you know, to, to evaluate whether that prototype could actually meet some of these requirements. Well, fortunately, a lot of legwork had been done uh, for us. Um, but I'll tell you, one of the one of the most interesting things, I don't have a prop here, it'd probably take me too long to get it. Um, but one of the interesting things that happened during the early days of the development for this technology was another grad student had actually done kind of a joking YouTube video where she was actually playing the old Mattel operation game with uh, the Da Vinci that they have at Johns Hopkins. And um, it's pretty funny to watch, right? You got this giant two million dollar robot, and you're you're plucking out you know the the funny bone from the little the little uh, 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 you know kids toy, right? And Russ Taylor looked at that and he said, "Well, you know that's that's interesting, but those pieces are gigantic compared to the kinds of anatomy you'd be going after with this robot. You know, you'd be looking at say, for example, you're sometimes doing like uh, one." potential procedure is for laryngeal, removing like a cyst from your vocal cords. You're doing that with a 25 centimeter long instrument and you're trying to grasp on tissue by bringing it down into the person's mouth and grabbing on this one millimeter, maybe one and a half millimeter polyp. That's enough to really mess up your voice. And you're trying to grab on that, you know, make an incision, all that sort of thing. So how can you support those hand motions to make that more precise? And so instead of the, the Monopoly game, what they ended up developing was this little uh, piece of sheet metal with a spiral that was uh, a millimeter, the channel and the spiral was a millimeter um, uh, gap. And the, and the game basically was to take a, uh, a laryngeal instrument, which is about 25 centimeters long, and you put the tip into the channel and you had to run it through the channel without ever touching the sides. Now that is very analogous to the kinds of hand motions that you would do in these narrow corridor procedures that you're, you're doing of upper head and neck. And so just being able to do that was, was actually a really big deal. In fact, there's, there was a study that ended up getting published showing um, just great results just by being able to do that. 
And we ended up taking our first commercial prototype of the robot to a uh, otolaryngology um, educational conference. And we had over 70 um, ENT surgeon department heads come into a uh, by invitation only demo. And we actually had them play the game. And we had people, their jaws are on the floor. They're like, holy cow. We only had one person that could actually beat the robot freehand. And they couldn't do it repeatedly. So just, so they had one good shot, right? They, they did one good thing. Um, but that was, but that was great because what, what it was, what, what that really helped us be able to see was that even the, the less nerdy people in the company could go, look at where we're helping surgeons do. That was something that we could really point at. And then by using, you know, camera vision and things like that, we were able to actually measure motion of the tool inside the spiral. And that's how we were able to then eventually quantify how much we were stabilizing the instrument. Um, but, you know, just being able to, as funny as it sounds, being able to build the equivalent of a kid's game and actually use that as a mechanism for for uh, for validating the function of the tool with surgeons, it just clicked. It just every one of the surgeons was like, "Holy cow! This you know not only will this make my life easier, this will make it easier for me to train residents because they'll spend less time focusing on all of the annoying techniques for mitigating hand tremor and blah 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 blah, and they're going to focus on." clinical effectiveness. How do I do the surgery correctly? Right. And so it was, it was huge for us to be able to, to be able to make that connection. We still do. It. Yeah. It's such a great story that, that, um, I mean, it, it's not rocket science here to, to the extent you can use uh, the benchtop prototype that you inherit or even mock up yourself and, 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 and have your end users use that. And there's either published data or if you can use computer vision, as you said, to to show technically that you're going to meet a few of those key requirements, then, you know, you have that data and you're ready to, to talk to investors and say, there's a market need. You have some technical feasibility here. You're ready to, you know, form, form a real company and actually proceed with, with product development, which uh, leads me deep into the chasm now. Uh, <laughs> now that we're, we're we're in it, you've been do, doing it for a few years, and and if I may, um, you know, ask the question again. So our audience is is developing these these medical devices just like you are. You know, what data has maybe to phrase it? You know, what data has been the hardest to capture, or most or most critical for you? to get through the woods in, in product development. Well, let me give you another leather example, um, just a quick story. So we took the benchtop version that, that Johns Hopkins had developed, and we tried to turn into kind of like the first prettier looking prototype. And I think you actually uh, saw that. And so the, the, the main guts of this technology is a Delta parallel robot. And, um, it's it's rel the the original version is actually relatively small, and so to get it into the surgical field, another student um, at the school as as one of their own I think it was a master's project they'd actually built this mobile base that would actually hold the Delta robot and move it into position. So we took what we knew, we took what had already been done, and we just made it look a, we made it a little bit bigger, um, and we made it look a little prettier, and we took it to this conference. Ergonomically, 
it was completely unusable. And the reason for that is, and we'd completely forgotten about this, otolaryngologists, so, you know, rhinologists, laryngologists, otologists, they're using surgical microscopes that are like right here. And the robot is supposed to then also come into the basically the same area and it's supposed to ergonomically fit into the environment that you already have. Well, that delta, which we ended up calling the flying trash can, was banging into the microscope. We'd completely forgotten about this critical environment that was in the OR. We're like, well, is it taking up too much floor space? I mean, we had all these KPIs that were, that were important, but we'd completely forgotten about the airspace being occupied by the, the meat and potatoes of the robot. And so, you know, this, this really goes back to, yeah, I mean, we, we, I'm not sure that that really was going to end up being the, the final prototype anyway, um, but it was a bit of a, oh gosh, what are we going to do now? Um, and you, you need those kind of failures. You know, honestly, um, I get nervous um, talking to potential users and potential customers and things like that and not having at least somebody tell me that I'm an idiot and dude, dude, this is not going to work and you're a moron and this is why, right? If I can't find somebody like that, I get start, I start getting fidgety because I'm like, I don't like it when people just like, they're either being polite and just like, going, oh yeah, that'll be beautiful. I'd love to see your robot. Um, you know, it, it, you got to find somebody that goes, you screwed this up, dude, and here's why. And so it, you know, even though it was a little discouraging, um, we pivoted really fast and, and we came up with a, a newer design that actually meets more needs than the original intention anyway. So it was a great discovery, um, but you need to have some failures. You got to, if, if you're not getting some kind of negative feedback, and I mean, and I mean somebody actually like getting in your face and giving you four little words telling you how badly you screwed up with your prototype. If you can't find at least one person that does that, you're probably not even trying hard enough with with what you're developing in the first place and <laughs> just keep uh, yeah, no, no, I, <laughs> so can you give us in our audience an idea for like how frequently you would pull you know market leaders for for this kind of feedback it's just like quarterly you would kind of try to get in front of stakeholders and go out beyond hopkins like like at what what clip were you getting this content <sighs> Constantly, Bruce and I, Bruce and I are doing at least one really in-depth demo with a KOL um, each month. Uh, that's a that's a minimum. In the beginning, it was probably at least once a week, and we were, and in some cases, we we're getting. Well, the first year, Bruce and I were on a plane all the time. So we were in every major hospital showing them, look, this is the technology we're developing and we're trying to figure out, you know, are we going in the right place? And, you know, what, you know, what, what would, what, 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 how would this solve your problems? We were getting in front of as many people as possible and just, you know, showing them technology, right? Because we didn't, at that point, I didn't even have a rollout strategy for a product. It was really still raw technology, um, but we were validating it constantly, just making sure that we're going in the right direction. Was is this going to solve your problem? So we hear you loud and clear. You you want um, rapid and constant customer feedback, and you want people to tell you you're doing the wrong things. If you have to build a, if you have to build a prototype with paper mache, do it. 
You know, don't don't wait for, you know, all the fancy activators and, you know, for the motors to come in from wherever you're sourcing them from and all that kind of stuff. Do whatever it takes. And in fact, there literally were paper mache mock-ups done before the original Mark Zero um, was produced at uh, at Johns Hopkins. So I'm not I'm not even kidding when I say paper mache, whatever, whatever it takes, get a mock-up made and get feedback. So you're on your way to market. And if I were, if I recall, uh, it's de novo, right? So, and and then talk a little bit about um, using on the market tools with your consumable. What does that look like? You know, that was that was a big deal. Um, we've got enough challenges with the technology that we're building. We didn't want to become instrument manufacturers. You know, there's Teleflex and Tegra. There's plenty of folks out there that make perfectly fine, you know, jackal graspers and scissors and cup forceps and all those kind of stuff. Who, who wants to go into that business, right? Um, and so what was really important was that we could meet the surgeons where they are with the instruments that they already know how to use. And so that was, to me, that, that's a huge, um, for at least for us, it ends up being a huge piece of the puzzle in terms of customer adoption and customer acceptance because we're not asking them to do a procedure differently. We're not even asking them necessarily to use a different instrument. Uh, because of FDA regulatory, um, you know, we have to specify exactly what instrument we're holding, like down to the part number. So right now I'm only going to be supporting one brand of instrument, but over time we could be supporting, you know, any arbitrary number of instruments and it's just, it's a serial process over time. Um, but that's, that's a huge for us because it means that we don't have to spend a lot of we don't we don't have to burn a lot of calories trying to figure out how to reinvent the instrument that's already out there. They're, they're class one instruments. They're already cleared. It's great. Um, and so by supporting them and by giving them more capability, um, you know, my favorite analogy is always, you know, chocolate stands on its own, peanut butter stands on its own. You put them together and it's my favorite candy. And to me, this technology is that kind of peanut butter cup solution because we're taking two standalone technologies and we're bringing them together and creating a new solution that does not exist on its own. And I think that's great. If you can do something like that, I think that's a huge win. Let's talk a little bit more about testing with the users. I mean, so there's this hybrid between market research and, you know, paper mache and, you know, kind of like more formal formative evaluations. And so I noticed that your, your product has a, a GUI, a, a separate screen. Can you talk a little bit about how the surgeon interacts with the screen, how you determined kind of what goes on the screen? And I assume that, that it's different for each procedure. Yeah, we, uh, we, we obviously, you know, the, the name of the game is to uh, keep your user interface not looking like DOS or Windows 3.1. So you don't just like cram every icon onto the screen that you possibly can. So it needed to be very, very clean. It's a touchscreen interface. And um, it's as adaptive as it possibly can be. So if you're doing a laryngeal procedure, you're only going to be presented with laryngeal instruments. And then eventually, as we add other surgical disciplines by adding other instruments uh, that are used in those other uh, disciplines, you would log in and say, I'm doing neurosurgery, and here's my selection of supported neurosurgery instruments. Um, And so that keeps the clutter down significantly. Um, when you're actually doing a procedure or, you know, testing the robot or, or doing a trial or whatever, um, we try again, we, we want to keep the information that's on the screen usable and actionable, 
but not like just, you know, a ton of telemetry and, and numbers, you know, zipping along like the matrix, um, but have things be very, very simple and, and easy to see. So when you're moving the robot around, we'll show you where the instrument is within the surgical workflow. Eh, for the most part, you probably don't even need that information, but sometimes if the, you know, if the, if the robot is, is draped, you might not know that you're at the edge of your workspace. Um, that sort of thing. So it, it is kind of, it can occasionally be useful to like look over at the screen and go, oh, you know, I'm over, but maybe I need to shift my robot six inches to the left or something like that. Cause I'm just, I'm in a weird space ergonomically. So we've got that kind of feedback. Um, but um, we just want to keep it as clean as possible. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, just uh, avoid, uh, avoid, uh, how, how do I usually put this? Um, I, I think one of the frustrations from a lot of surgeons is that a lot of surgical robots kind of become the centerpiece of the OR instead of the surgeon. <laughs> and so we want to be a piece of equipment that's there to serve the surgeon, not turn it into the surgeon is there to serve the robot. You know what I mean? Um, and so it's, it's all about what can we provide that is easy to digest and is not distracting. To go along your um, the terminology of being simple, like the surgeon can always override the robot. Is that fair? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's gain controls and things like that. Um, so, you know, you can slow down the robot's response if you're in a really, really tight situation. And you're just like, I just don't, I don't want the instrument to move as fast as it could potentially move in, in you know, in, in free space. Um, I want the robot to slow me down. Sometimes that's actually what the surgeon wants. And so there's slider bars that they can jump to that just say, you know, drop the, the top level of the gain down. Um, and it's, you know, uh, that, that's something that they pick up during the, the training process, which is a very uh, short uh, process. In fact, we're, uh, we've got another big usability study coming up um, in a few weeks. And um, uh, this round of surgeons, like the last time, they get about two hours worth of training for the user interface. And then they're, they're in a cadaver um, doing work. And they seem to be picking it up really, really quickly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's important to, especially with something like a surgical robot, you need to make sure that there's enough, you, you want to keep things simple, but at the same time, you want to make sure that the power users or somebody who's had their hands on the robot for a few weeks and they start to go, you know, I, I like the default, but I just want to have it feel a little bit, you know, whatever in my hand. I want it, I want it to give me a little bit more resistance or I want it to be a little bit looser. Let them make those changes um, as long as you can do so, um, obviously, in a safe and efficacious manner, um, you know, depending on however your hardware works. But, uh, but you know, those settings are important, but, you know, you can't just like blast them in the face of of uh, of the user either got it all right so we've covered you know who galen robotics is we've covered you know what data is critical and it's clear you know you need a market need you need to test with end users and to the extent that um you have technical demonstration already out of the box with the technology or licensing that that certainly helps give you the confidence and you transition into formal product development um and you know so so the next section here is uh, just kind of classic product development questions for you. Um, so the, the first question, a lot of these startup companies that we talk with are, you know, in the exploratory phase, like a phase zero. And at, at what at what point did you know that Galen was ready to go from phase zero 
to formal product development? I mean, because you're all, you know, you're, you're building this airplane as you're flying it. When did you lock, you know, product requirements? What, what were you looking for? You know, when we came back from that, that big otolaryngology conference, um, we, we clearly knew that, that we had some work to do on, on the requirements. Although I guess maybe the requirements themselves were relatively stable, but it was the engineering output response to those requirements that really needed to be changed. Um, but, uh, but we knew we, had some, we, we still had some work to do. Um, I think when we had our Mark II prototype and we started putting it in front of people's uh, you know, putting in front of people again and, and doing, you know, phantoms and just different uh, studies. Um, that was when the feedback was coming back and it was like, oh, I love how this does this. And if you could uh, support this or if the four sensor was a little bit more durable, I could put this bigger instrument. Suddenly the, the kind of feedback was come to us in the context of I believe in what you've done as, as a base model here. And so I'm now able to start thinking a little bit beyond what you've, what you've given me. And that's when we, that's when we, I would say anecdotally knew that uh, we were, we were, we were ready to like start moving more aggressively um, into commercialization. Um, now, how do you quantify that? I mean, that's, that's pretty tricky. Um, you know, you uh, that 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 comes down to the the whole talking to customers and and making sure that those requirements are really reflections of what is it the user wants to do, um, and that's 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 important. You've got to and and it takes you know we've done those um, we we do those we we've actually done requirement reviews company wide, where we've had almost every single person in the company sitting down as we would walk through one requirement after another and actually even like sometimes hash out semantics going, yeah, but is this, is this requirement really describing what it is that we're trying to achieve? Um, and, uh, you know, that it, it takes more than one person in the room to do that sort of thing. So, um, we, we made sure that, uh, that, you know, everybody had, uh, at least visibility into that process. So, it was tough. It was tough. <laughs> it sounds like there was a little bit of like a gut feeling that, you know, you're onto something and, you know, you're ready, you're ready to lock requirements and you've got this combination of uh, agreement from the market. Plus now you have a team and you sort of sounds like you crowdsource reviewed your requirements. I think that's great. I mean, and, you know, rather than just having the engineers, you know, put requirements together and then just proceed with product with design control development you get in this this infinite loop of making design changes you have to document and then you find you know uh, user needs come out of left field and then you're you have to go back to phase zero so i like how you at least focused on the end user and then crowdsourced you know your requirements so we're a pretty technical company here i'm gonna i'm gonna ask a couple software related questions here uh dave i remember on uh, one of the other podcasts you said that you know surgical robots are close to 80% software anyways. So um, can you talk a little bit about the software and you know what you licensed from Hopkins? And clearly, you know, this is a public forum here. We don't need to get into the details of the control algorithms and things like that. But you know, other startup companies are inheriting soup, software of unknown uh, pedigree, right? So how has the software evolved from when you first started to where we are today? As, as nicely as I can say this, um, the software that was handed over to us from the university was for demo purposes only. Um, there, there's no way that it was going to just roll straight into commercialization. Um, 
it definitely demonstrated to us that things like the algorithms were understood. You know, there's there's math, you know, with kinematics and things like that that can be really tricky. And so um, the software as it exists certainly provided proof that those algorithms had been sufficiently vetted. And so there, there were guts in there that were good. Um, but, you know, uh, grad students and, and, and all of that um, working on you know, different class projects and things like that. They're not having these big architecture meetings deciding how to like modularly produce um, software for, for a, a, a gizmo um, that's, you know, being developed inside of a university. So it was, it was spaghetti. <laughs> I mean, Soup you know, spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was rough. And so, we had the challenge of not only moving development forward, but also re-architecting it live. And so our director of uh, software engineering, um, I think, did a uh, just an incredible job. Um, in fact, we've been able to um, add in some additional you know, future features for demo purposes that he was able to drop in um, within days um, because the code has become so much more robust and modularized. Um, and that was critical, but, um, you know, my warning to anybody that is going to license code is, you know, the code is going to show you that technologically it's feasible, but do not expect that you're just going to like slap some new icons on the code and then take it to market. It is not ready for that. And, 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 and as good as you might hope it is, and, you know, you might interview some postgrad seems like just the savant for coding or something like that. You just... I, I think it's a bad idea to even assume that, oh my gosh, the code looks great. You know, well, no, it doesn't. Um, you, you need to formally go through it on your side of the fence and you need to treat it as, as a prototype and you need to, you need to work it out and make it your own. Um, it's just, it, it's what you gotta do. Yeah. So, so it's a six degree of freedom robot. Uh, and then looking at, looking at the patents and whatnot, you know, it's a series of, uh, transducers and, and sensors in an array and you collect all this data and it, it helps guide the user. But can you talk maybe, um, you know, philosophically on the control algorithm? Like, for example, how does the robot differentiate between, you know, a hand tremor that's not intentional and an intended movement from the from the surgeon? Or does it just filter out, you know, micro hand movement and so it turns out from the literature um, that naturally occurring hand tremor actually has a very specific cycle to it. It's actually around 50 to 60 hertz, um, weirdly as that number is, um, as a coincidence. But um, so certainly the first approach is is really just you know filter out that 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 jitter because you just don't need it, right? Um, yeah, I'm going to move from point A to point B. I don't need all this fuzz. Um, so that turned out to actually be a relatively simple solution. But then, yeah, then, then it gets into the control algorithms gets way more complex from there because you still are asking, you know, the, the kinematics to follow your hand and you want it to do it naturally. Right. And so you don't want to feel the, the, the grind and pop from each of those individual motors as it's trying to decide to go into the next position as it's following, you know, whatever vector or travel your hand is going through. Um, so that's where it gets rough. And in fact, we have a person who's a PhD in hand controls. 
And um, that's all he does is just tuning the feel of, of moving the instrument along while you're holding it um, so that it just, it feels as natural. And um, I, I often use the, when it's not feeling good, uh, especially in the early days, um, I would describe it as crunchy. Um, as you were actually trying to move the instrument, you could almost feel, it almost felt like you were like dragging it across a gravel road. And that's, you know, we could get into why that is, um, but that's, you know, just, that's a, that's a response factor of all the individual motors trying to like move into the next position kinematically um, as you're traveling along. And so getting that to feel natural was rough and it's an ongoing process, honestly. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll always be tweaking and tuning that, you know, based on different um, uh, applications. Uh, the tuning might change depending on the, the, the procedure type. So the tuning is currently fine for our laryngeal um, indication, which is our first uh, go-to-market. Um, it might be different when you're doing neurosurgery. I don't know. Um, so that's that's something we have to explore. But is that is that's actually where it gets rough. Um, canceling out hand tremor turns out to actually be pretty easy. So I'm just curious <laughs> when you get into to V and V, um, there's the essential performance requirements, and I would imagine your essential performance is you you know reduced hand tremor, aid surgeon positioning by X, you know either you know dimension or percent, whatever. Are you? I'm curious. Are you? developing a robot to test your robot or are you using you know how are you actually verifying that um a lot of it is is hand feel because if it doesn't feel good to the surgeon um it really doesn't matter what your numbers are um it still has to feel good because this is a cooperatively controlled robot um if it was fully autonomous i could probably get away with something a little bit more automated um, but in a lot of ways, we have to take it through the processes with a human being at the control stick um, because, because there is that qualitative factor. It's got to feel right um, or it doesn't matter what the math says. Um, so that, that was a challenge for us. And that doesn't necessarily apply to all surgical robots. I'm going to ask a second part of that question as we enter the final round of our podcast here. Uh, we, <laughs> we used to call it the lightning, lightning round. round. Now I'm going to call it, you know, questions from key techers. So, so to get on the market, medical devices need to be safe and effective. So you just described, you know, a way to measure uh, efficacy, right? It's got to feel right. But how do you justify safety when you have this tool on, uh, that's mounted on something that could very easily move very fastly, fast in a, in a direction you don't want it to go. So kind of philosophically, how are you justifying the safety here? That is part of your tuning is that you've got to, you have to understand what those bounds are for normal intended motions. Like a surgeon that is, you know, got an instrument buried down into somebody's larynx isn't going to do this. It's never going to happen. And so you've got to find some way of characterizing what that unwanted motion would look like and make sure that you are basically restricting those motions within uh, normal bounds um, for that procedure. So you do have to put numbers to things like that. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, uh, another great example is when you're doing something like a, a mastoidectomy, you know, you're drilling with an 80,000 RPM glorified Dremel tool and, um, the the mastoid is not solid bone it looks like a it looks like an english muffin there's just like nooks and crannies all over the place and one of the biggest risks that you have with a handheld drill is that you open up one of these nooks or crannies and your drill can actually like dive in and 
inside of that little pocket could be one of two facial nerves. It could be a blood vessel. There's a lot of real dangerous stuff inside the mastoid just waiting for you to, uh, to expose it. And so, you know, understanding, and this isn't something that we currently do because uh, we're, we're not supporting a drill yet commercially. This is something that we're doing as research for this technology, but understanding what a normal drilling motion would look like versus the thing jerking out of your hand, that's something that you can actually, don't even need machine learning for that. That is something you can actually write an algorithm to and go where, if the surgeon says, you know, turn on anti-jerk, um, don't let the tool jerk out of my hand. And that is a motion that you can characterize, and it's a motion that is unwanted, right? It is very is very easy to get any otologist to sit down and go, I don't want a tool jerking out of my hand. Okay, well, what is it? What is it, what is jerking out of your hand look like? Actually, characterizing that mathematically and squelching that potential motion out um, from the robot's repertoire. That's where we add safety to manual instruments that cannot be achieved under normal means. So yeah, it sounds like your 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 first launch is implementing these safety features that don't exist with humans. Um, so that's a great sort of baseline platform launch. And then you know, let's talk a little bit more about the future with autonomy. And you need to collect the data from each procedure eventually and use it. But what you have, you know, the motion. I guess talk a little bit more about what data you're collecting or potentially going to collect with this product when it's on the market. And maybe an idea of what, what, what are the first couple layers of autonomy you'd, you'd want to go to market with? Um, I'll, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a hint. Um, if you look at something that has been done by uh, Dr. Greg Hager in the computer science department at Johns Hopkins, since 2006, he's been working on something called the language of surgery. And one of the examples of his research involves basically having a um, evaluation algorithm tied to the hand controls of a da Vinci. And it can almost instantly tell you if how experienced the, the user is that has their hands in the control system. That can be applied all over the place. And so one of the things that we wanna do is as we're collecting all the motion data from the surgeon that's driving um, uh, the robot is actually looking at the efficiency of hand motions and how can we help support what they ultimately wanna do. Um, even without, you know, even with like, you know, you know, tremor control and things like that, there's still going to be an inefficiency of, of motion. Is there, are there ways that we can actually tighten that envelope and make the instrument do what we can tell the surgeon is really trying to do and help them dial in the instruments so that they're just going straight for, you know, the disease tissue or whatever it is. And we can actually glean a lot of that um, from just the motion data. So that to me is, is really cool because um, that's, that's, that's fruit that can be done um, algorithmically because, you know, machine learning and surgical robots is not something that's going to go together um, in the foreseeable future because there is no clearance path with the FDA for uh, basically having machine learning guide a, uh, a, a robotic system that is holding a weapon because that's really what how they're looking at it right now, right? And so there's so much that we can do just by looking at the motion data and saying, how can we dial that in and really ultimately do what the surgeons are trying to do in the first place and, and actually be able to, 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 to tighten that motion envelope. And so I think that's pretty exciting. But second to that is 
we have been exploring ways of adding, even though we're using existing surgical instruments, without modifying the instrument, how can we effectively add sensor data to the use of the instrument itself? Like, for example, if we were holding a drill um, with the robot, is there a way that we can actually tell how much pressure is being applied between patient tissue and the tip of the drill? And what kinds of things can we improve for the surgeon by that? Like, for example, can we make sure that if you're like in the middle ear and you're doing something called a stapedotomy, can I make sure that you can't push the drill so hard that you actually break the stapes or the stapes foot plate, which is a really bad thing to have happen? Um, or or if I'm drilling those nooks and crannies I was talking about and I'm, I'm, I've got pressure from the drill and then suddenly I'm in outer space and there's no pressure, there's no resistance to the tip of the drill. Can I slow down the response of the drill just to make sure that it doesn't plunge? And these are all things that we can do with with by adding maybe a little bit of additional sensor that might go into like the the instrument adapter itself so so the instrument adapter might have additional sensors on it that just gives us better information about how the tool is being used and um what kind of tissue response we're getting from the tool and again these are things that you cannot do in any meaningful way with a manually held instrument. So the cool thing about this whole industry is that robots are actually giving you access to information about how surgeries are being done that has been anecdotal for literally thousands of years. And now suddenly we can actually get, we can put numbers to hand motions. We can put numbers to, you know, uh, you know, tissue contact and all those sorts of things that is that even if you could have collected it you now 10 years ago or something like that, it would have been useless because you're still holding the instrument manually. So what are you going to do? Right. And so um, that's to us, that's really exciting because that also opens the door to what if we were talking to a nerve root monitor? Well, the way that work currently works is you hear a beep and you stop your hand. Well, if we were talking directly to the nerve root monitor, we could get a signal from it and we could stop you in a way that the human hand cannot match. And so there's all kinds of safety capabilities that we could do um, just by being more connected in the OR. And to me, that's what that's what I find really exciting because I'm not a roboticist. We've got expert roboticists here. That's not my thing. My thing is what kinds of applications can, can we provide using this robot as a platform? And that's really where we take this in the future. And that's that's cool to me. I love that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I had appreciated it right here until the end where you know you keep talking about safety. And when you think about devices, you, you, know, you say safety and efficacy, but kind of the engineer in us always kind of jumps to, well, how effective is it? And you kind of you know, downplay safety in, in a way, you just want to check that box. But, you know, your, your, your platform and surgical robotics in general, sounds like safety almost could be more important, you know, in, in what you're preventing than the efficacy. Um, oh, heck yeah. Um, you know, one of, one of uh, Russ Taylor's, ba uh, you know, famous phrases is uh, the biggest risk of surgical robots it is, is that it does exactly the right thing, but in the wrong place. And, you know, we think of that all the time, you know, in our code, it's just, it's baked in our DNA. Nine, nine lines out of 10 in the, in the software code are about double checking what you're about to do and in safety and all those sorts of things. And so, yeah, sometimes we almost take it for granted because it's such an integral part of everything that you tell the robot to do. You got to make sure that it's doing it safely. And that's got to be your baseline. 
and then build on top of that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The, the safety part and the opportunities for making surgery safer, although, man, that's a difficult indication to prove from a, a, a you know, a marketing clearance standpoint, but that's got to be your guiding light, I think, because that's where the opportunities really are. Two more questions for you. Uh, this one's a little bit of a curveball, but I like this one. We pulled the audience, uh, or, you know, the key techers here. Are there certain actions, surgical actions, that a human is dramatically better than a robot at doing, as you see it now? Or are humans losing and they've already lost? Well, I think one is uh, where the where the robot I think is better is actually stabilizing instruments. I think and it, I think a robot is better capable of holding something steady and never getting tired than a human being is. But here's the thing: human beings are better at getting the lay of the land. You know, you can look inside, you know, a, a part of the anatomy and you can figure out heads or tails as a human being way better than any algorithm is going to be able to do, at least in the foreseeable future. And so to me, that's why cooperative, cooperative robotics is such, a, is such a, a great opportunity because you get to bring together the best of both worlds. Human beings are still the best motivated decision makers. They can look at something and they can motivate, you know, they're motivated to go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Okay, I've opened the patient up. Oh, my God, they're a mess. And, you know, and actually make a game plan and then apply it. But the, but the robot can actually make it, to me, easier for them to do what they are trained to do. And that's the best of both worlds. I totally agree. So uh, last question for you. So you've been developing this robot for, for six years you started as you know two guys in a garage sounds like uh, and here you are today you know thriving so so if you could, could go back and do one thing differently from a product development perspective uh, what do you think that would be and and why and again our audience is you know entrepreneurs at global companies and you know folks like yourselves trying to get to market I wish I had more copies of our earlier prototypes um, I feel like even with the Mark One and the flying trash can and all of that kind of stuff, I feel like we could have learned more if we had more copies of that robot that we could have. I, I've got five different universities that I work with on a regular basis that are using our platform or are building tools or software modules that are anticipating the use of our platform. And if I could just send them a robot to have. Um, I think that would be such a, uh, that would have been such a huge win. And, you know, it's, it's tough because especially, you know, in the money raising environment, unless you're willing to go to some, you know, $10 billion fund and bring in a hundred million and get diluted, you know, beyond belief, um, it's not always easy to afford, you know, a half dozen prototypes of, of something that you're not sure if it's really the final version. Right. Um, but but if I had a magic wand and I uh, I could uh, make that decision um, without consequences, consequences being Lucian, um, I would have absolutely have had uh, more copies of each of our rounds of prototypes than than we were than than, we, than what we actually ended up building. Um, I just think it's more valuable. It's way more valuable. You know, it sounds like you wanted. Why did you want more prototypes? Just more user feedback early more, more, more user feedback, um, you know, and then sometimes maybe something screwy happens and you just like, oh man, if I could just like take this robot half apart, I could like learn so much and I could figure out, oh, why did it give that weird response? Right. But if you've only got one or two of them, 
you know, you, you take the thing apart so that you can play with it on the bench. You suddenly have taken that prototype out of commission. And now the software guys maybe don't have a platform to develop it on, or you can't take it over to the university, or you can't take it to a cadaver lab. You've got limited resources, right? There's only, there's only so, especially with something like a surgical robot, you've only got so many resources and yet you've got multiple, well, in our case, we had surgeons from, you know, a half dozen disciplines going, I've got a cadaver. And if you can just bring the robot over, <laughs> we'll do a cadaver lab with you. And it's like, Oh my God. Um, yeah. Just the, the opportunities create themselves. If you've got multiple copies of your prototype. Yeah. Did you consider like making an analog, a cheaper version? I'm, I'm thinking like, I don't want to say duct tape, but like, you know, something that like kind of mimicked it enough to get you the user feedback that you were looking for, or is it just way too complicated to even consider that? Or the other way to do it cheaply is do a subsystem. It would have been tough in our case because the precision levels were actually creating new opportunities. There are minimally invasive and narrow corridor procedures where just no other robot could touch that thing. And the surgeons were like, well, I think your technology can, but I need to try it myself. And, you know, it, it was it was kind of it was kind of one of those tricky things where it's like what we were trying to evaluate really required a fully working platform. So we also did build simulators. So, I mean, there, there are things that we, that we did in fact do through software simulation. We actually simulated transphenoidal approaches and things like that completely incidentally through blender. Um, <laughs> we actually built an animation model with rigging um, in blender and we're actually able to validate um, things like a transphenoidal approach um, and just make sure the geometry was sufficient to get in and out um, and all of that. So, I mean, there certainly were things that we did um, do through through software simulation. But uh, yeah, I, I, looking back, man, if, if I had extra versions of the Mark I and the Mark II, uh, I would have been a happy camper. Yeah. So there was obviously funding limitations. Uh, but, but I guess another question, if you could go back, yeah, I guess what was the most challenging part of what, what you're doing? In, in some cases, it was actually taking some of those things that we were talking about earlier, those qualitative, you know, kind of how does it feel and actually turning that into numbers. I mean, at some point you're dealing with kinematics, right? You've got to turn it into math somehow, even though it, even though, like I said, it's got to feel right or it doesn't matter what the math says. But the flip side of that is you've got to take what feels right and you've got to be able to express that as math. And, um, you know, that that was tricky. We've, we've got some hardcore math nerds here and uh, we had some scary whiteboards with, <laughs> with all kinds of crazy algorithms being worked out there. And, um, you know, that 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 stuff can get really hairy at times. And, um, you know, sometimes we would, you know, almost. Well, there, there were a couple times when we almost spent nothing but um, a full week just sitting there vetting math. Because um, ultimately, that is where your safety comes from. I mean, if, if your algorithm's bad, um, especially for these, some of these weird kinematic um, uh, equations, um, there could be a, you know, a, a, a hidden motion that could actually cause an injury. And so it's, you got it, 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 that is rough to do. Um, it is, it, it, it is a hair pulling situation at times. Yeah. Right. So you, so you recommend like creating kind of a baseline algorithm and, you know, create this sort of embedded. Yeah. Yeah. Through, through analytics. 
Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta prove your <laughs> math. Prove That'll your be math. the next episode, Dave, sometime, <laughs> sometime in the future. So, uh, hey, Beth, hey, thank you so much for your time today, and um, obviously, best of luck, you know, getting to market here in the next couple quarters or so. And um, yeah, and um, you know, go thank Baltimore. You. So, thanks everybody. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks. Thanks.